Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The reading of God's word this morning. Good morning. We have two Bibles opened up here, so you're going to get it from both barrels today. So we're still in Mark 7. This is the second part. Uh, nobody wanted to hear me talk for two hours last week, so we divided it up. Uh, we did two of three parts of the hand-washing story in Mark last week, where Act 1 had the religious leaders come from Jerusalem and nitpick about Jesus' disciples not ceremonially washing their hands before eating. And the best analogy that... I've heard on this comes from one commentator who says it would be similar to guests coming from your denominational headquarters and interrupting this worship service right here and saying, why do your children not fold their hands and bow their heads when you pray? Is it because you are so poorly trained that you have not taught them? Now, is it good to bow and fold? Yes. Is it profitable to reduce distraction? Absolutely. 
But is that at the level of biblical doctrine? No way, mister. But the Pharisees thought it was so important to wash hands ritually and in front of the eyes of everyone that they chided Jesus for his disciples' lack of following their tradition. And Jesus would have none of it, which is act two. Even though hand-washing actually makes sense, it's a good thing, right? It's a very good thing. But Jesus refused to participate in it because the Pharisees had elevated its importance to the level of Scripture. They had made their commands on par with the commands of God. And Jesus blasts them. This is not Scripture. He doesn't justify or explain his disciples' behavior. Instead, he turns the Pharisees' level of indignation around on them, and he vilifies them for their hypocritical hearts and their heresetic false teachings. Mark 7, 7 through 9 says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own tradition. And he breaks their whole system of righteousness apart. Not in anger, but in compassion. Because they fell prey to one of the two classic blunders of religious people. They concluded that the best way to honor God was to get it right. Get it straight. Do everything and do it correctly. Be exacting, as if making mistakes was sin. And all of us are susceptible to this. That was loud. I must follow the rules perfectly in order to please God. We say this. How many of us are embarrassed to tell another that we've missed our morning quiet time? Or we begin our next prayer saying, sorry, God, I haven't spoken to you yet today. Now do your devotions. Pray without ceasing. Tell others and God about your spiritual life, but don't take accuracy and list checking as the measure of your holiness. Instead, we are to evaluate our justice and our mercy and our faithfulness We are to evaluate the fruit that we bear, especially in moments of stress and conflict. And we are to cry out in dependence upon God. This, this is the measure. This is the path of righteousness. Not rule checking. Briefly, the other blunder that us spiritual types uh, tend to do is to speak and act in ways that don't honor God but because we are just so sincere in our hearts, soft in our voices, we believe God will understand. Just because we are well-meaning in our prayers or in our worship, for example, doesn't mean that our offerings are acceptable. We must not act outside of how God has said He is to be addressed or praised. Scripture tells us that we must honor God in the ways that He tells us to honor Him and not to presume upon His grace. So just because someone is earnest or being genuine doesn't mean that they are acting in obedience 
And again and again, in many ways, Scripture says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Act 2, the denouement, Jesus says in verse uh, 13, you thus make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And the rule-filled life trumped the God-filled life. Getting the details right over how to deal with dirt won out over an authentic and dependent life as the way to pursue righteousness and purity. And Act 3, today, Jesus takes down the whole system. Verse 14 and 15 says, He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, up until now, the major understanding of purity was that there were a number of things largely external to the body that were unclean or impure and could thus render someone unclean before the Lord. These are the things that a righteous Jew would then avoid in order to maintain ritual purity before God. And Leviticus and Deuteronomy give detailed instructions concerning what foods are clean and unclean, as well as laws surrounding birth and death and disease and discharge, to name a few. Now, all of this, these purity laws, were established by God to demonstrate His holiness, to exemplify that as God is holy and separate from evil, His people should be holy and separate from evil. But instead of taking these laws as a living metaphor, and I really like this phrase, cleanliness laws were meant as a living metaphor, pointing to the deeper spiritual realities of purity versus sin, it was just easier and more tangible to focus on seen practices than unseen. Looking good, sorry, rather, look good, and people will think that you are good. But God never made that shift. He never once accepted physical purity void of spiritual purity. He never once said, as long as you have clean hands, you don't need to have clean hearts in front of me. And Psalm 24 says this beautifully. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And similarly, both the Old and New Testaments talk about circumcision as not just an outward sign of being a Jew, but an inward sign too. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And this is repeated in Jeremiah 4 4 and Romans 2 28 and 29 and elsewhere like Colossians 2. Everywhere in Scripture, ritual and ceremonial purity points to holiness. Nowhere 
in Scripture does ritual and ceremonial purity ever replace holiness? I'm going to say that again. Everywhere in Scripture, ritual purity points to holiness. Never in Scripture does ritual purity replace holiness. And Jesus sees these man-made fences being built all around biblical laws and the resulting absence of true obedience and actual holiness, and he collapses the whole thing. Again, he said, this is verse 15 through 17, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Jesus, but what about dead things? What about leprosy? Or the marketplace filled with unclean pagans and idolaters? Surely eating pig, camel, or blood makes unclean things go into the body and corrupt, doesn't it? I mean, why do we avoid unclean things if not to avoid being unclean? And Jesus' answer is an outright no. No, that's not how it works. All this was meant to point to the spiritual. But you have forgotten who your God is. What good is it to wash the outside of the hand in front of a 10 trillion BTU furnace? Our God is called a consuming fire. And no amount of SPF sunscreen in the form of hand washing can shield a sinner from his unmeasured holiness. Only Christ. Only Christ. Now, I need to digress. We will take up the holiness of God and the goodness, the good news of his Savior in a moment. But I need to address verse 16 first. Because some of you really keen junior hires have probably seen that there's no verse 16. It's just not there. Look at your Bibles, the rest of you. It goes 14, 15, 17, 18, 19. Famous. Missing. Now, if it were there, and here's the trick, the verse would say, if a man have ears to hear, let him hear. And it's found in older translations like the King James. But it's omitted in many of the newer translations that we have, like the NIV and the ESV. And this is because in the past 420-some years, since the King James Version was written, we have uncovered many, many more copies of the Greek text than they did. And the older and more reliable Greek texts that we now have don't have this sentence in it, which means that it was likely added by a zealous copyist, quoting either Mark 4.9 or Mark 4.23, which say pretty much the same words. But in verse 16, these are not actually Mark's original words, and that's why they just aren't there in our Bibles anymore. Now, normally, I would have glossed over this. It's not really a big enough deal to mention, but, and this might wrinkle some feathers, the same thing happens at the very end of the book of Mark. So here's your heads up. 
When we get to Mark 16, verse 8, that's where we will stop. Mark's actual conclusion is missing. We don't have it. Verses 9 through 20 are an attempt, but they are not Mark's actual words. And so we are not going to entertain them, not at all. Straight out of this passage that we're dealing with today, this is so practical. If the Pharisees were censured for adding works to Scripture, how much worse if we go on adding words to Scripture? So we won't do it. Now to verse 18 and 19. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. So here's the big test. I haven't been part of this church long enough to know all the unspoken rules of propriety and decency, but I'm about to say the word poop. Can I say poop in dignified company? If anyone gets mad about this, note that St. Paul said it first. Philippians 3, 7 and 8, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Here it is. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And the Greek word is not rubbish. It's not even garbage. It's poop. Some scholars say that it's an even more base word than that. So if Paul says that in light of knowing Christ, everything that he previously gained is counted as poop, I think we can handle this word in church today. Who's with me? Thank you. <laughs> Here's the deal. Read all the laws of Scripture. You could even read those add-on laws of the rabbis, the rules that Jesus has just rebuked. Scour it all, and you will not find any law that considers the handling of poop as something unclean. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's totally at the top of any list I would make of unclean things. But Jesus, in taking on what goes into and what comes out of a person, knows that it's not in either Scripture or in the Jewish oral law. And he basically says, if food defiles a person, why is it not regarded as unpure, impure rather, when it winds up in the latrine? We can put it another way. If poop isn't ceremonially unclean, how is it that the food that we eat could be? And this is according to your own tradition, which sets up his concluding words in the real source of defilement. The only defilement that my disciples need to worry about has to do with the heart. And this is interesting, right now, many modern Jews will wash their hands three times when waking up, but only once after using the washroom. 
poop is offensive, but not ritually unclean. And if poop does not render one unclean, how would anything that entered the body through the mouth be unclean? These teachings do not make sense. It's like when Jesus corrects the Sadducees in Matthew 22 over marriage. He says, sorry, but Jesus said to them, you are wrong because you neither know the scripture nor the power of God. Now, as far as Mark's little addendum in verse 19, where he says, thus he declared all foods clean, the ESV study Bible has a really good explanation of it. It says, the Mosaic ceremonial laws distinguished between clean and unclean foods. And we've been talking about that. And it was their purpose to instill an awareness of God's holiness and the reality of sin as a barrier between between us and fellowship with God. And we've been talking about that. But once defilement of the heart is thoroughly removed and full fellowship with God becomes a reality through the atoning death of Jesus, the ceremonial laws have fulfilled their purpose and they are no longer required. And that's the food stuff. Now let's look at the heart stuff. Verse 19 and verse 6 are connected. I'm going to read verse 18 and 19. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it does not enter the heart, but the stomach, and is expelled? And Jesus links this back to his quote of Isaiah from verse 6. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So it turns out that this whole passage is about the heart. The heart is the linchpin. Where did the Pharisees go wrong? In their heart. Where did humanity go wrong? In the heart. Where do you and I go wrong? In hearts that are far from God. And our hearts are so far from God, in fact, that we do not even seek for Him on our own. Not at all. No no way, no how. Our hearts are born spiritually dead, and without His Holy Spirit's regeneration, all humans would remain spiritually dead. The Spirit of God must act first in reviving the dead heart. Verses 20 to 23, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. The evil heart produces evil thoughts. That's the first thing. The seed of thinking, reasoning, and desire, the heart, or the inner spirit, or the will, produces evil thoughts. Why is the world so evil is not a pointed enough question. We ought to ask, why are you and I so evil? And it's because our hearts are evil. And the heart constantly produces more and worse evil thoughts. And Mark says that those thoughts then produce 
12 evil actions, which is no by, by no means a catalog of all the wickedness. But 12 is a biblically significant number. It represents completeness. The first three, sexual immorality, theft, and murder, parallel the next three, adultery, coveting, and wickedness. And these emphasize or even augment what is being said. And the remaining six are a list of root vices common to men. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within. They defile a person. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is such a countercultural verse. We should tattoo it on our brains. And if tattooing is wrong, maybe embroidery. I don't know. <laughs> the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. No amount of scrubbing can clean the heart. No amount of external action, no amount of self-examination, no amount of penance, no amount of self-righteousness, no amount of effort on our behalf can atone for our sin-filled hearts. What we need is an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves, not UFO. Stop trying to find answers from within. Stop trying to actuate healing by empowering, discovering, or unleashing your innermost being, because it's all ugly. The heart is already unclean, touching anything dirty or detestable, and I guarantee, touch anything dirty or detestable, and I guarantee that it's cleaner than you and I are in our inmost being. What we need is to have our hearts cleansed, to have the purity of Jesus Christ imputed, put on us, that we would be made new, white as snow, a new creation that our hearts would be brought close to God, actually indwelt by the very spirit of the living God. Do you ever get tired of hearing Ezekiel 36, 26? I'm gonna read a few verses around it. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Regeneration is instantaneous. When the Holy Spirit breathes life into a spiritually dead heart, that person is made fully alive in that moment. But sanctification or growing in godliness is just like education. It takes a lifetime. It is process-oriented. Those called by God are promised purity and wholeness, and it's guaranteed by Christ's own resurrection. But in God's wisdom, it takes a lifetime to fully reveal Christ-likeness in a believer. As long as your heart beats, you are alive. 
As long as your heart beats, that is the amount of time God will use to grow His righteousness through Christ in you. Now, since coming to Rose City Church, since having the Bible illuminated so very clearly to me week after week, I've been forced to slowly and carefully revisit every tenet of faith that I ever knew in light of the real gospel. And now there are a couple big truths that I love to talk about with people, like the sovereignty of God. Because it makes an earth-changing difference if you believe God is actually in control of all things. Like actually king and orchestrator of every particle, wave, raindrop, bug, and person. All things past, all things present, all things future. Today's verses on holiness and purity gain part of my life and understanding. And it just means this, that we are totally unable to save ourselves. Before the new life of the Spirit, all humans are born dead, spiritually dead, not spiritually sick, and the remedy is somewhere within, somewhere within reach, but dead, dead, dead. And see how This is also key to today's message. Nothing outside us can make us any dirtier than we already are. Nothing outside us can make us any more dead than we already are. Nothing within us can give us spiritual life. What we need is a radical solution, an external rescue, which brings us to the gospel. The gospel is that God is still in the business of rescuing sinners like you and me. While we were his enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself. He brought the far off close through the substitutionary work of Christ's death on the cross. Sin demands death, and Christ's death satisfied our wages. It paid what we owed. Jesus' righteousness cleanses our sin, and his inheritance becomes ours. Because the bad news is so bad, the good news is so good. But, and I'm speaking practically here, The most life-changing lesson that I've learned in my time here is that we are called to be holy. And that means we can be holy. Holiness isn't just for the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holiness isn't just for angels and glorified saints. Holiness is to be yours and my ordinary, everyday pursuit. Now, I can't muster it. You've met me. Nor can I pray and demand it, because that's just not how prayer works. But I can't dismiss it either. When God says, be holy as I am holy, the Bible doesn't lower the bar or relax the standard just because it's unattainable. Instead, God promises, hear this, everybody, God promises to cleanse us with water in the Word, to wash us by the very blood Christ shed on the cross, and not just to clean us, but to make us brand new. 
Christian, we are to pursue holiness. Acting in such a way that shows we are cleansed. Behaving in such a way that shows we are redeemed. Living in such a way that bears witness to the inward reality that our hearts are now alive, holy, and pleasing to God. Two weeks ago in his message from Romans, Josh said, the dominant chord of the New Testament is that the saved are to live in victory over sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's good. I'm going to say it again. The dominant chord of the New Testament is that the saved are to live in victory over sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Concluding that if we do not, maybe it's because we have not believed this truth correctly that we have not seen ourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ. My friends, holiness is possible because of Christ. Holiness is to be our common, everyday lifestyle. And sure, we'll stumble, but it will be less and less as we by faith believe that Jesus has, in fact, changed our hearts and is changing them cleansing us from within and empowering us toward obedience and joy in serving Him. And that's such good news. Let's pray together. God, we are in desperate need of You, a need so great that we cannot do it ourselves, do it for someone else, Make any measure that would matter toward cleaning up our hearts. The heart is wicked. But Lord, thank you that through Christ's death and resurrection, thank you that our hearts can be made clean, can be made new, can beat in obedience to you. Lord, it is so exciting to know that holiness is our call, that the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have, for the reminder of this meal, Lord. We want to serve you to give you glory, to trust you. And we need you so that we can do that for your glory. Amen.